in James, and then just last week, Michael talked to us about uh, to ask for wisdom, who God gives generously. So we want to go before the Lord and just ask Him for some wisdom and what to do. Sound good? Yeah. Really appreciate your prayers. Don't just say, yeah, please, please pray as we look for what possibilities we can do. Uh, and to this service, uh, the invitation stands that if you would like, if you don't serve at the 8 or the uh, 11 uh, and you want to go to one of those services, uh, I'm, I'm guessing you'll probably be more rewards in heaven. I'm just saying. <laughs> All right. Let's get to it. Grab your Bibles. Book of James. We're going to jump right in. Uh, we're week three in this. And let me just read. We've got three verses today. So 50 minutes tops. All right. It says, Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with the scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Those are our verses today. So we're asking, what exactly is he trying to say here? Like, what, what's the mean? Who are the lowly? Uh, who are these people? Uh, and I thought we weren't supposed to boast. Like, that was supposed to be a bad thing. Don't do that. We're told to boast here. Uh, and should we want to see rich people uh, humiliated? Anybody? Like, yeah, I'd kind of like to enjoy that. I'd find that. Anybody? If your hands are up, I'm assuming you don't consider yourself rich. Uh, but we're looking at, James, what exactly are you trying to tell us? Like, what's the point that you're getting at here? And we're going to try to figure that out. Now, we're going to we'll come up for breath in a little bit, but I just want to point out some things in the text before we do so. There's a contrast being made here. Uh, the lowly and the humble, uh, and you would think the contrast between lowly and humble would be what? The proud, Right? That's the kind of, you know, you got humble people over here, you got proud people over there. That's the contrast. But that's not the contrast James makes. He makes a contrast between the lowly or the humble and the rich. And what he's getting at here is there's a contrast in social economic standings. You have people in humble circumstances, and you have people in well off circumstances. Now, do those kind of divisions exist still today? Anybody feel those in our world? What about in the church? I feel like there's a division maybe between the wealthy and the poor. Is there a class warfare? How should the Christians handle this? I mean, this is what James is addressing. And remember, in their situation, we pointed out a few weeks ago, the context of this is James is writing to Jewish Christians in the dispersion or that are scattered because of persecution that was happening in Jerusalem. The church started in Jerusalem. It booms. It explodes. It's this amazing group of people that are devoted to the Lord. But persecution comes, and some of them, not all of them, but some of them scatter or leave Jerusalem for the sake of their safety or a better life. Now, if you do that, you're leaving behind your career, your job, your income, your social circles, your families, and you're moving to a different situation. That's going to affect your social economic standing. We experience that today. There are refugees in our church who in their home country, they had a good job and a good standing in their society. But because of opposition and violence, they fled. And now they're underemployed and facing challenges of fitting into a new culture. Same thing for them. Persecution pushed them out and then affected their social economic status. Now, uh, there is a debate in this text on who exactly are the rich people that James is talking about here. 
One could be, um, are they wealthy unbelievers that are exploiting the poor believers? If that's the case, then what James is doing is pretty much just straight up trash talking. Like he's telling poor believers, like exalt or boast in your exaltation. But rich people, let me tell you something you can boast about. Your perishing end. Like, well, it could be. That could be what he's saying. I mean, that's an understandable translation. I don't think that's the case. I think that uh, rather than that, he's talking to rich believers. And he's telling them not to put their hope or to find their identity and value in their wealth. In that case, which James is trying to kind of put both poor believers and rich believers in their place so that they'd be better brought together. Because you think about it, uh, if you have believers that have fled Jerusalem, they left behind their jobs and their income and their community, and they go to another place, and they try to connect with believers that live there that didn't have to leave their jobs, didn't have to leave their social circles, didn't have to leave their source of income, do you think that might create some division and some opposition in how they connect to one another? Plus, look at the text. Go back to verse 9. It says, Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. Now, for verse 10, you've got to go back to verse 9 to borrow some words to complete a thought that James is making in verse 10. So if you just read verse 10, it says, And the rich in his humiliation. The rich what in his humiliation? Well, what would, what would we conclude? What would we put in there? The rich boast in their humiliation. So if you're going to borrow one word, it would make sense. Let's borrow two words. He's kind of connecting these thoughts. So you would say, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and let the rich brother boast in his humiliation. So I, I think he's addressing uh, both Christian people in poverty and both Christian people in wealth. And James's letter which is super punchy. It almost reads like Proverbs. Like it's to this, to this, to this, to this. But in this chapter, he hasn't left the theme of trials that we started week one. Remember that? Count it all joy, my brothers, when you consider trials of what? Various kinds. And here I'm going to talk about two varying kinds of trials. Poverty and prosperity. And you're like, okay, I get poverty. Like, I understand the opposite. Like, we're trying to get people out of poverty. Poverty. We're trying to, like, I understand how that's like a trial of difficulty that people go through. But maybe you've never seen prosperity as a trial. That's more like the goal. Right? That's where we want to get to. But the Bible clearly talks about prosperity as a very tough test to pass. Let, let me read some cheerful verses for us. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and what? Money. Now, you would think you would say God and Satan. Like, you can't be on this team or that. Like, you got to pick. But he's saying, listen, one of the biggest oppositions that God faces for your heart is stuff and money. Now, here's another one. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, he is referring to the rich young ruler, if you remember that parable, or not parable, that situation said, how difficult is it for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God? For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Saying, There's some danger there. There's something to trip over. Here's another one. This is 1 Timothy six seventeen. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. He's saying, I know what rich people are going to struggle with, being haughty, being prideful, putting their hope in the wrong things. Here's another one. This is 
Revelation 3, he's talking to a church um, much like the American church that might feel like we have everything we need. We're in a very prosperous situation. He says, for you say, I'm rich. I have prospered and I need nothing, not realizing that you're a wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Like, here's the danger that you're going to think you don't need anything. You're going to think you're fine. He's saying prosperity can be a tough test to pass. Like John Flavel, who's a Puritan preacher, he wrote a book called The Keeping of the Heart, in which he talked about how do you guard your heart when you face different trials. He talked about sickness and illness and persecution. Do you know what the number one trial he listed first? Prosperity. Like how do you how do you guard your heart through prosperity? Like that can be a tough test to pass. I, I recently uh, I saw a, a trailer for a documentary called Super Yachts. And I watched it. Not the, I just watched the trailer. Uh, and I got to be honest with you, I want one. <laughs> I want a super yacht. Uh, not just a yacht, a super yacht. Let's just skip the yacht and go to the super yacht. Uh, and I thought, that would be so cool. And I'd have a helicopter that could land on my super yacht. And there's like a pool there. Anybody else with me? Did you come? Yeah, I, I think we're, we're united in our desire for a super yacht. That would be so cool. And I think we can, like, see other kind of lifestyles and we can think, wow, awesome would that be? Well, if you didn't have to worry about any kind of financial trouble, if you can just kind of take off whenever you wanted to, and you can kind of elaborate vacations, and, and you can kind of, like, how much stress-free would life be when that? And you can kind of project, like, that's the life. But maybe we never ask the question of, like, boy, if I did have that, what might that do to my soul? We, we probably never ask that question. But the Bible is clear that prosperity is a tough test to pass. And we're all thinking, yeah, I know, still like to try. (laughs) Still like to try. Listen, if um, nobody tends to think of themselves as rich, it's always like the category above them. Like, they're rich. I mean, not me, but, but they're rich. We've tried to tell our kids from the beginning, you're rich. We have two TVs. You're living large. But listen, if you don't have to worry about leaving here and killing something and starting a fire to cook it so you can eat tonight, you're doing pretty good globally. But, but let's even like just zero it down. If you have electricity and plumbing and, and shelter and cars, plural, or you have a garbage disposal. Do you know what that is? We have an excess of food. So our culture is designed something. Here's what you do with the food you can't eat. We're doing pretty good. Now, it's not wrong to be rich. In fact, there are places in scripture that talk about it as a blessing. The question is, can you be rich and not lose your soul? Remember what Jesus said? Like, what good does it do if you gain the whole world but forfeit your soul? Or can you be rich and still be a passionate, fully devoted, sacrificial follower of Jesus Christ? That's tough. Because remember the rich young ruler? Like he was all in until he heard what it cost and then he left. That can be a tough test to pass. Listen, here's what we have to understand. Both poverty and prosperity are trials that can be spiritually dangerous. Both poverty and prosperity are trials that can be spiritually dangerous. I like how the Proverbs say this is Proverbs 30. It says, two things I ask of you. Deny them not to me before I die. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. 
Feed me with the food that is needful for me. Least I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or at least I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. Here's what he's saying. There are ditches on both sides that are spiritually dangerous. If I'm in poverty, there's ways I can sin this way. And if I'm in prosperity, there's ways I can sin this way. Keep me out of both of those ditches. That's what he's asking. And this can be, this can be challenging, especially in our context, to grasp this. Because for some of you that... That may be more left-leaning politically. You might think that the poor are good and the rich are bad. The rich are people who just exploit the poor, uh, and the poor are righteous who are being mistreated by the rich. And is that true? Yes, sometimes that's true in certain cases. Or for some of you that may be more right-leaning politically, you, you may hold on to a narrative that the poor are bad and the rich are good. Because the rich worked hard and they made good decisions, but the poor were lazy and they made bad decisions. And is that true? Yes, sometimes. But we don't live in this kind of black and white world. There's complexity to these issues. And the Bible tells us that there is danger in both ditches. There are good in both categories, and there are bad in both categories. There are ungodly poor and ungodly rich, and there are godly poor and godly rich. And you think of godly poor, you think of the widow. They give her might. All she had was an example of faithfulness. Uh, you think of even the author of this book, James. He was Jesus' half-brother. You remember what his dad did? He was a carpenter. Or Peter. He was a fisherman. Those are like your blue-collar scholars. Right? Poor. But godly. Or ungodly poor. The Proverbs talk a lot about the slugger that leads to poverty. Or ungodly rich. You see Pharaoh and Nebuchadnezzar and Herod who exploit people. But then you have godly rich. Abraham was wealthy. David was wealthy. Joseph of Arimathea, maybe lesser known, but he was the one who got Jesus' body after he was crucified, gave him the tomb, and he's called a disciple who was rich. So there's, there's complexity to this. And James is addressing both poor Christians and rich Christians in this text. And listen, guys, having money or not having money or anywhere in between, it's a part of life. It's a part of life. And as Madonna put it, it's a material world, right? Some of you laugh that grew up in the 80s. Other people are like, who's Madonna? <laughs> it's a material world. But that's not what life is about. That's what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. Like, don't be like the Gentiles. You're going to stress over what you wear and, and what you eat. No, that's not what life is about. Life is more than food and drink. Like, uh, seek first the kingdom of God. That's not what life is about, but yet we tend to make it about that. We don't just put on clothes. We try to, like, style, right? We don't just have shelter. We get a new house or a remodeled house or a better house or a bigger house or new floors or new countertops. Like, we try to get into it, right? Or as the song continues to go, it's a material world, and I am a material girl or boy. (laughs) How many in here would say that, yes, I struggle with materialism? Okay, but half the room is honest. No, 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 no. You, you maybe hold, hold your ground. Let, let, me, um, let me read the definition. Like, it would be easier if you just admitted it, but since some of you held back, uh, <laughs> let me give you the definition of materialism. The tendency, okay, so you got to even right there. It's like, is there a tendency in your heart? The tendency to consider material possessions and physical comfort as more important than spiritual values. 
Anybody? How about the rest of you that didn't raise your hands the first time? Right? How many in this room spent more time trying to figure out what you're going to wear to church than preparing your heart to worship at church? Materialism. We live in a material world. I mean, it's everywhere. Just kind of thrown at us. On the computer, you get a pop-up ad. Here's what you need, right? Billboards when we drive, commercials. Like, it's just kind of bombarding us all the time. And we're born into it. Like, we're born into and brought up in a culture that loves stuff. And you need to get stuff and accumulate stuff. And you get too much stuff, get a storage bin to keep your stuff. It's dangerous. Look at who we idolize. People who have nice stuff. You can get tours of rich people's homes and their super yachts and their cars. And we watch it. And we want it. But here's how it affects us. We start to make these conclusions that that's where happiness is found. And that's where status is found. Like if I want to matter and value, that's where I get it. And that's where security is found. Like if I don't want to worry, that's, that's what I need. It's dangerous. And listen, you don't have to have stuff to want stuff. As Paul told us, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. You don't have to have money. You just got to love it. You just got to want it. You got to pursue it. So here's the question. How do we spiritually survive a material world? Uh, what do we do when we feel the pressure of materialism building up in our own heart? How do we not get wrecked spiritually by a material world or living in a material world? How do we, how do we fight that? We'll put it this way. How do we as a church be a group of people that rich people and poor people are brothers and sisters and get along and have real deep community. Isn't that the place we want to be? I mean, one of the reasons I love being downtown is everybody lays claim to downtown. Like, as soon as you put your church in a neighborhood, it begins to reflect that neighborhood. Understandably so, and I'm not even saying that's wrong. It's just, it's what happens. But there's no neighborhood here. Like, everybody feels a piece of downtown. So you can have a church that has very economically diverse. I love that. How do we guard it? How do we foster it? How do we have a church where it's not just economically diverse in the rows and seats, but in the relationships? How do we get there? Let's look back at our text. It says, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, or the rich brother boast in his humiliation. Now, James instructs both of them to boast. And you're like, I thought that was the thing we weren't supposed to do. But not all boasting is bad. Let me read a few passages for you. So that it, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So you can do that. Or Galatians. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Here you go. Thus says the Lord... Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. And let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For these things I delight, declares the Lord. So not all boasting is wrong. In fact, there's some things where we're commanded to boast in. Now, the word... uh, um, well, I'll get to that in a second. James is directing us to boast. <clears throat> we need to know what that means. 
what exactly do you want us to boast in? And then how exactly does that help spiritually protect us in the material world? That's where we're going. Okay. Now there's another word I want us to see what it means. And it's that word exaltation. That word exaltation uh, in Greek is hoopsos. Now, that kind of sounds boasty, doesn't it? Especially if you're playing basketball. Like, you can't handle my hoop sauce. Uh, <laughs> I'd say, don't use that because that's the wrong kind of boasting. Um, maybe, maybe not. Just have some fun with it. But it literally means height. So what, what that phrase would, would literally read is, let the low person or the low brother boast in his height. But he's not talking about literal height. He's talking about a status. So let's look at a few other places where that word is used to better understand what James is getting at. This is in Luke 24. It says, And behold, I'm sending you, this is Jesus talking to his disciples, I'm sending you the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on hoop sauce. That's what he's saying. It's like the Spirit is going to come down from on hoop sauce, from on high. All right, let's look at the next one. Ephesians 4.8. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on hoop sauce, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Who ascended on hoop sauce? Jesus, right? He ascended up on high. So he's talking like, there is another realm than this earth that I'm talking about. It's from where the spirit descended from and it's one where the son ascended to. And I'm telling you, poor believers, that you exalt in that. You understand where you're going. You understand your spiritual status. You understand your future. So he's saying, poor Christians, I know you don't got a lot here. I know you have hardship here, but you need to boast in where you're going. You need to boast in your spiritual status. Essentially, take pride in who you are in Christ. And how could they be so confident to boast in that? The gospel. It's been purchased for them. The tomb is empty. This one who promised to be with them, to to come back for them, he's away preparing a place for them. Like that, he rose from the grave. Like this gives them confidence. The gospel gives the poor a royal status, a high position. So how about the rich? How about about the rich? Because James is using the gospel like bumper bowling. Anybody ever go bumper bowling? Where they kind of protect the gutters. So if you're going to go and make this mistake, you run into it. And you go over there, it's going to take protect you from either gutter. That's how James is using the gospel. I'm going I'm to talk to the rich, I'm going to talk to the poor, and I'm going to put a gospel uh, you know, guard in, in each, each gap. So the gospel protects us from despair, and it also protects us from pride. Look, look at verse 9 and 10 again. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, and the rich brother boast in his humiliation. Now, the temptation or the trial of prosperity is to find your worth, to find your value, to find your status in your earthly position. Now, tell me that you don't feel this pull to find your worth in your success, in your job, in your income, in your relationships, in your looks, in your talents, in your ability. Like, we feel that pull. And sometimes we don't even know it. It's like, well, I, I'm somebody because, because I can preach. But then somebody up here gets in, and they do better. And then you're like, oh, who am I, right? 
Or, or I get, I get sad because I'm the funny guy and I can make somebody laugh. And then somebody comes along and they're like funnier than I am. I'm like, oh man, who am I? Like it kind of attacks your identity or, or I'm somebody cause I'm, I'm successful. Then somebody comes along and they're more successful. And you're wondering like, you have this identity crisis or I'm always like, I, I'm put together and I, I'm good looking. And then somebody comes along and they're more good looking. You're like, I don't know who I am anymore. Like you str- like, you don't know it, but you find your value in these things. You find your worth in it. How do we escape that? Because doesn't that sound exhausting? And that your worth is so fragile? How do do we escape that? There is an aspect of the gospel that is humbling. There is good news and bad news when it comes to the gospel. And both are helpful. You get me? There is a good news of the gospel and there is a bad news part of the gospel. And both are helpful. So the good news of the gospel is in Jesus Christ, you are completely forgiven That God is not counting your trespasses against you. You are a fellow heir with Christ, completely redeemed. Amen? Okay. The bad news of the gospel is you are a rotten sinner who rightly deserves the wrath of God forever. And you can't save yourself. That's humbling. That's humbling. And if you push back against that, because your mom really built up your confidence... When you leave here, go up to somebody you don't know and introduce yourself. Shake their hand, look them in the eye, and say, I'm a really big deal. <laughs> See, you let, because you know you're not. It's free. Look at me, look at me. You are not a big deal. You are not a big deal. And that's freeing. He's saying, don't lose your sight, don't lose sight of your neediness. Rich people, don't lose sight of your neediness, Americans. You start thinking you're a big deal in a material world, you could be in real spiritual trouble. But he doesn't say, let the rich humble themselves, because that would sound a lot nicer, wouldn't it? He, he says, uh, let them boast in their humiliation. Now, the word humiliation means what you think it means. It's not fun. Like humble, we can be like, yeah, that's a good virtue humiliated none of us want that but that's what he's saying let let the rich boast in their humiliation so what is he trying to say to them let's look at another place where james where this word is used this is in acts chapter 8 uh this is when philip is witnessing to the ethiopian eunuch who is reading out isaiah kind of came along this is what happens now the passage of scripture that he was reading was this like a sheep he was led to the slaughter And like a lamb before its shears is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his, what? Humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life was taken away from the earth. The humiliation is, is this idea of Jesus being hung on the cross, publicly mocked and ridiculed. That that's the imagery, that's the word that he uses here. And listen, if you're wealthy. You probably, probably you have a high social status. You're probably respected in the community. You're probably admired in the community. You're probably uh, looked on with uh, admiration in your community. But to be a Christian at this time, someone who follows a condemned criminal as their savior and king, what do you think that would do to your social status? 
Now think first century Christianity, not 21st century Christianity. Because we hear that and be like, oh yeah, my boss is a Christian and the president of the board, they go to that church and I know lots of Christians. And it's just kind of normal. First century Christianity. Wait a second. That guy that was executed as a criminal and hung on the cross, you follow him as your, your savior? Oh, you think he's God. That's your God. That's humiliating. That's humiliating. And James is saying, hey, rich people, boast in that. Lean into your identity in Christ no matter the cost, no matter the social cost. Find your value there. Be proud no matter the, what it costs you. You're, you're, with, you're Jesus. He's your king. Embrace the social humiliation of being a Christian. And here's some motivation to do so. Because, like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls, and the, its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. This life is temporary. The next one is not. The next one is not. Everything you work for to get that promotion, to get that house, to get that car, to get that approval, to earn that status, it's all going to go away. It'll burn. You know what else is temporary? Humiliation. You know what's not temporary? Your exaltation in Jesus Christ. And James is trying to help them say, you need to have an eternal perspective. You need to see the big picture. You're chasing things that it's like dead grass. It's going to like burn up and be gone. That's what you've given your life to? You don't want to identify with Christ who's eternal because they might think that you're not going to make the social club, which is not going to exist. Like, is that what you're saying? Like, he's trying to help them have this eternal perspective. See what matters. See what will last. Do you have an eternal perspective? Not do you believe in eternity. But does your belief in eternity shape how you function now? Shape what you think is important now? Shape how you live now? Is that true for you? Now, chances are the answer to that, your answer to that is sometimes I try. And I want it, but I find myself slipping back into it, like longing and fighting for things that don't really matter. And then I come back. But yes, yeah, sometimes I have that. But here's the thing. That's the same thing for James' audience. They they know this stuff. This isn't new information to them. In fact, this language about uh, the grass, uh, the flower, the grass will pass away, the sun with its scorching heat, withers the grass, its flowers fall, that's all Old Testament language. They know this stuff. This isn't new information. And listen, guys, you know it too. You know what will last and won't last. You know what's important, what's not important. Like the problem isn't an information problem. It's deeper than that. But here's what James is doing. He's reinforcing an eternal perspective. He said, I know you know it, but, but you need to know it. Like I know you get it, but you don't get it. Like I, I know you can get the answer on a test, but it's not shaping your life. So he's like, I want to reinforce. Like you know it won't last, right? You know being humiliated for Christ is worth it, right? 
Like he's trying to reinforce this eternal perspective. And it's what he's telling us to do too on our own to reinforce it. Look back at verse 9. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. Now, when we're getting into a Bible study, it's important. Like what are the nouns? What are the pronouns? What are the verbs? Like what, what are we being told to do here? What's the verb in this sentence? He was like, I didn't know it was English class. <laughs> boast, right? So you're like, I did not sign up. Just tell us the answer. Verb, uh, the verb is boast, right? You, you are to boast. That's what we're being called to do. Now, um, that word boast means to glory or to rejoice. In fact, uh, some of your translations may just say rejoice. It's a present tense verb, which means it's, it's a continuous ongoing action. It's not just do it and be done. It's do it and keep on doing it. So he's saying, hey, boast. Keep on boasting. Poor people, keep on boasting in your exaltation. Rich brothers, keep boasting in your humiliation. Keep it, rejoice and keep on rejoicing. And listen, in a material world that is just constantly bombarding us with this is what we need and this is what will make you happy and this is what will give you status and this is what will make you secure and, and here's what you need. It's like just, it just, it does it and it keeps on doing it. Right? You know, when you leave here, you're going to see another commercial. You're going to see another ad. Somebody's going to have something that you want and it's going to keep coming at you and keep coming at you and keep coming. It's, it's continuous. And he's saying in that world, to spiritually survive, that material world, you need to continuously rejoice in the gospel. Nonstop. You've got to have a lifestyle rejoicing in the gospel. We can't just agree with the gospel. We have to celebrate it. Because it's not just your head that needs the gospel. Your heart does too. Right? So, so how does the information that you have here get here? Because that's, that's what matters. Like, how does our understanding of the gospel actually get to a place where we love it and we rejoice in it and we celebrate it? We don't just believe it. We rejoice in it. Because when we truly find joy in the gospel, the materials in this world loses its appeal. And sometimes when we think if we're going to fight sin, I just got to say no to the things I want. And you are going to find yourself in a cycle of failure. You know how to beat sin? You find a love that's greater than the desire for yourself. You rejoice in the gospel. You get passionate about your standing in Christ. And when that's happened, the, the temptation of materialism fades away. You want to know how you survive spiritually in a materialistic world? You rejoice in the spiritual things. You rejoice in the eternal things. It's how you fight like, you can't just, like, intellectually agree with the gospel. You have to love it. You have to celebrate it. You've got to rejoice in it. It's so crucial to your heart. Um, I'm not musical at all. Like, alone in the car, I can rock out. Uh, but I'm not. I'm not I can't sing. In fact, my wife is musical. All three of my kids are musical. Sometimes they just like to get together and harmonize. They tell me to stay quiet, stay out of it. <clears throat> we literally went to a nursing home just to like, as a family, let's go sing to old people. My wife asked me to stay in the car. No joke. <laughs> uh, so I'm not musical at all. But I've really come to believe if you don't sing in church, you're more vulnerable in the world. If you don't sing in church, you're more vulnerable in the world. Now, 
I attend the 11 o'clock service with my family. That's the service that we go to as a family. But I work here, so I'm, I'm attend all the services. And sometimes I just stand at the back or I stand in that little cutout there. And I got to tell you, you guys are such a blessing to me. I love to hear this church sing. It's, it's awesome. And sometimes I'll look around and be like, huh, they're not singing. Really? That person's not singing? And I get it. Like, it's uncomfortable. It can be awkward. We don't feel like we can do it. But whatever it is that makes you uncomfortable expressing praise to God is what makes you vulnerable to worldly temptation. It's that, like, what do other people think? I'm uncomfortable. I don't know if I like this. I would rather fit in. But guys, isn't that exactly how James is challenging the rich believers? Boast in your humiliation. Who cares what they think about you? Associate yourself with your Savior. When we come to church, it's like, praise your king. Like, your heart needs it. Not just your head. Your heart needs to worship God. Why do you think there's so many commands in the scripture to sing, to shout, to clap? We have to reinforce to our own hearts our standing in Christ, and just talking about it doesn't do it. It doesn't feed the heart. That's why James says rejoice in it, boast in it, glory in it. Here's what I want you to remember. Rejoice in the gospel to not get lost in the world. Rejoice in the gospel to not get lost in the world. And maybe your problem is not that you don't believe the gospel. Maybe your problem is that you don't rejoice in the gospel. And your head can get all the answers right, but your heart is starving. And it's just shriveled up. Maybe your problem is not that you don't believe the gospel. Maybe your problem is that you don't rejoice in the gospel. You don't have an, a, a lifestyle of an ongoing practice of rejoicing in the gospel. So let me, let me get practical here quick. Make being here a priority. Now, I'm not saying that because we got attendance issues. Um, in fact, if you're not going to be here on a priority, give your seat to somebody who will, okay? That sounded really mean. Still meant it. Um, <laughs> but make being here a priority. Like, I know you've got so much stuff going on, but maybe what you don't realize is how bad your heart needs to worship God. And you think you're okay because your head just gets the right information. It's not like I don't believe anymore, but your heart needs to worship God. So, so make being here a priority. And when you're here, make singing a priority. Don't just be a spectator of worship. Be a participant of worship. Engage. Like, you praise God. You need, I'm telling you, you need it. You were designed for it. Because, listen, if you, if you are not reinforcing your identity and value in Christ through ongoing rejoicing in the gospel, you will look for your value and identity in other things. You're wired that way. You're a human. And you're going to try to find it in your job. You're going to try to find it in your success. You're going to try to find it in your looks, in your talents, in your relationships. And you're going to work hard at it. And you're going to devote your life to it. And then someday, it's going to be gone. And none of it's going to matter at all. And what you're going to learn is heaven is not a place where you learn to worship. 
Heaven is a place for worshipers. So, Christian, whether you are rich or poor, stop finding your value and identity in the material world. To the poor believer tempted to feel insignificant and powerless, take pride in your exalted status as a fellow heir with Christ. To the rich believer tempted to fall in love with your comfortable earthly status, take pride in associating yourself with a crucified Christ no matter the earthly cost. And church, here's my hope. That this would be a place where rich people and poor people are brothers and sisters in Christ. Not just sitting in the same room, but in relationships together. And the only way that that happens is when the gospel takes away shame from the poor and takes away pride from the rich. And together, as fellow sinners saved by grace, we exalt and praise our shared Savior and King. That's what we look for. So when we go into time of communion, I want you to know, this isn't disconnected from what we just talked about. Our greatest fear is it just turns into this ritualistic practice. Right? Even me saying the words communion, some of you are like, yep, holding up my Bible, putting it away, I guess we're done here now. No, no, no. We don't take this lightly. And this has everything to do with what we just talked about. Because listen, if you're struggling, kind of like that poor brother or sister, you're struggling with despair, you feel like you're a nobody, you look at the social standings in this material world and you don't feel like you measure up. You're not the prettiest, you're not the richest, you're not, and you just feel like crap. And, and now we're getting ready to look at the body and blood of Jesus Christ. Here's what you need to hear. Do you know how loved you are? Do you know that you're a fellow heir with Christ? He has bought you with your price. And your future is secured. Or if you're struggling with pride, and you just so desperately want to be liked. I mean, you don't want to boast in humiliation. No, you want approval. You want people to think highly of you. You want to be liked. You want to fit in. You'll never step out in case somebody might not like you. And we're getting ready to take communion. Here's what you need to hear. Come and take up your cross and die. Die to yourself. Die to your pride. And you can die to yourself because Christ died for you. And your death just will lead to your resurrection in life. Just like his death led to our redemption. And then church, would we be a church that rejoices in the gospel? We don't just believe it up here. We love it here. And every Sunday we come and we sing. We're a singing church because we're a church who loves Jesus and loves the gospel. And if anybody would come here and visit this place, they may leave and think, I don't want to come back. But they, those people, they love Jesus. I'd love that. If that would just be evident that we love our Lord and Savior. And why do we love our Lord and Savior? Because he first loved us. He came and rescued us. He came and died for us. We would never get to the conclusion of how beautiful Christ Jesus is on our own. He opened our eyes to that. What an awesome Savior that we have. And he is worthy of our praise. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we need you even to want you. So I pray that you would wake us up. We're like in a stupor or a slumber, intoxicated in a material world, longing after lesser things. Wake us up to the beauty of Jesus Christ. 
that we would treasure you, praise you, be united with you, waken our hearts to you. We love you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.